Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The conflict in Syria is entering a new phase. Over the last several years, Syrian government forces backed by outside powers like Russia and Iran have steadily regained control of territory held by rebel factions. As they lay siege to opposition fighters, they forced groups, including massive numbers of civilians, to retreat to a part of Syria called Idlib, which is in the northwest of the country, near the border of Turkey. Today, this is the last large rebel-held bastion. The number of fighters is relatively small compared to the some 4 million civilians trapped there. Russian fighter jets and Syrian artillery have continued to target this area, though there has not been an all-out ground invasion. Meanwhile, millions of civilians trapped here and in other rebel-held parts of the country in the northeast are dependent on humanitarian relief to stay alive. For the last six years, the main lifeline for civilians in rebel-held territory in these parts of Syria has been aid delivered across the border. What is significant about these cross-border aid deliveries is that it's done without the consent of the Syrian government. And that is unusual because for both legal and practical reasons, the United Nations and aid agencies it works with requires the host country's permission to operate. But in 2014, with humanitarian disaster mounting across the border from Turkey, and with the Syrian regime not permitting aid deliveries to rebel-held parts of the country, the UN Security Council used its authority to authorize the cross-border delivery of aid, even if the Syrian government would not consent. This was a big deal at the time and allowed a massive aid operation to reach millions of vulnerable civilians trapped in northern Syria. That Security Council resolution enabling the cross-border delivery of aid requires reauthorization every year. And every year, even with Russian acceptance, it's been reauthorized. That was until this year. On January 10th, Russia forced the Security Council to severely limit these aid operations. Now, says my guest today, Vanessa Jackson of the humanitarian organization Care International, cross-border aid operations will be extremely limited and perhaps even cease altogether in the near future. Vanessa Jackson is the United Nations representative for Care International. She's been following both the debate on Syria at the Security Council closely, and we discuss the impact of this restriction on the delivery of humanitarian aid, as well as how this move fits into the broader trajectory of the conflict in Syria. So that January 10th Security Council meeting happened amid a global news ecosystem that was dominated by heightening tensions between Iran and the United States. It did not receive the attention it deserved. So I'm glad to shine a spotlight on both the current situation in Syria and also the humanitarian implications of 
this next phase of the Syria conflict. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. All right, now here is my conversation with Vanessa Jackson of Care International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, so, so Idlib is um, one of the largest populations of opposition-held territory that's left in Syria. So gradually we've seen the government of Syria retake um, control of areas that were held by opposition groups that were fighting um, against the government. And gradually that space has shrunk to some pockets in the north of the country, some in the north west where we find Idlib province um, and some in the, the northeast where we've seen um, recent activity um, with, you know, Turkish forces coming into Syria to, to bring um, the conflict to, to that location as well. But I think what makes Idlib the most um, significant really is the size of the civilian population that is there and its location means that it's, it's very strategically located, it's very close to the Turkish border. Uh, and so for, for people that have fled other um, hotspots in Syria and other big towns like Aleppo, um, Eastern Ghouta, etc., you're probably familiar with those names from, you know, different um, contexts of, of the, the conflict over the last few years. Idlib is where everyone who's fled somewhere else is now... Um, essentially having to um, make their homes. Often um, they're melding into the host community. Some people are um, living very rough, um, very temporary shelters. Um, it's really tough at this time of the year where you have winter setting in. Um, so people are obviously over the course of this year where we've seen the the Syrian government with support from from Russia um, really starting to um, move in on on this area in the yeah. northwest well because it had been there had been this sort of tenuous sort of ceasefire right that um, enabled people to go to um, Idlib to sort of have a degree of security from the fighting in the rest of Syria that Turkey brokered a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, so that was back in 2017. It was one of the so-called deconfliction zones. Um, but obviously, it, it's remained in the headlines. It's remained a place that, that is seeing active conflict. And we've seen that really escalate over the course of 2019 from about April onwards. 
and you know it's it's very much a, a, a live conflict um, within Syria, and where you know we're hearing reports, particularly since about mid-December, of a really um, sharp increase in the the fighting of, of targeting of civilian areas, targeting of, of hospitals and medical facilities. Um, in recent weeks, we've heard of schools being bombed um, and, you know, numbers of students and, and teachers killed. So all those um, reports that we've probably become familiar with about the conflict in Syria, we're seeing all of that playing out in Idlib right now. And it's, you know, it's three million people and there's nowhere else to go within Syria. So that's, I think, why there is such a, a tension on, on this particular location and, and why the Security Council has also focused its attention on the humanitarian crisis that comes with this degree of military action in civilian areas. Yeah, there, there's sort of this saying in the humanitarian space, like, you know, there is no more Idlib to which people from Idlib can flee, right? Exactly. Um, that captures it well. Yeah. So, so can you sort of describe then what does this fighting look like? Is it mostly aerial bombardment and shelling? And the groups that are the armed groups in Idlib are themselves also part of the problem, right? Yeah, so it's very much a, a, a space where civilians are intermingled with the combatants. Um, often it's, it's the families of combatants um, who are becoming the targets just because of their co-location. Um, but it, it's such a concentration of people that, um, you know, as we said, there is nowhere else to go. So that's why I think the the rules of international law um, and the rules of war become that much more relevant in a context like where, it, where you, in Idlib where you have um, civilians and combatants co-located and, you know, those areas coming under attack very indiscriminately. Um, and many of the people in these areas who have been displaced multiple times are women and children. So, you know, we do have schools. We, you know, people are trying to go about their normal lives um, with some semblance of normality. But the reality is um, that they are in an active war zone. Can you talk a little bit about how the aid operation works in terms of getting humanitarian relief to this besieged population? So we, we know from United Nations figures that there's about 11 million people across the whole of Syria who are in need of humanitarian assistance, who can't meet their you know essential requirements, whether that's health, medical, shelter, etc. And we know that of those 11 million, 4 million of them are completely dependent on aid that's coming into Syria from border regions. So over the last five years, the, the, count, the Security Council has authorised the United Nations to bring in aid from Jordan, from Iraq and from Turkey into Syria because that is the most cost-efficient, quickest and effective way of getting to people who have these very real needs. Can I can I just sort of stop you there and emphasize an important um, aspect of this that you mentioned, which is that the Security Council authorized this, and and they did so because it is not something that the Syrian government was cooperating with, and and sort of the way that aid works, and and you 
probably know this, obviously know this better than I do, is that they requires groups like CARE, for example, require the consent of the host country that you're working in. But when Syria was seemingly four years ago, five years ago, routinely, you know, obstructing the delivery of aid to areas not under regime control. And so the Security Council, what was in 2014, mm. passed um, a resolution allowing, permitting the cross-border delivery of aid, even if Syria did not consent. Is that is that sort of an accurate summary yeah, of, that, of what happened? That that's very true, and I think it's it's particularly significant that the United Nations said, without this authorization from the Security Council, we don't feel that we have the ability to provide this aid, but we feel we have a responsibility. So the Security Council gave them the green light, gave them their blessing to be conducting these massive cross-border operations and they've been doing that ever since and reaching as i said like at the moment it's it's four million people who have become dependent on this you know without it their lives really would be in in great jeopardy and, and does care participate in these cross-border aid deliveries there's many international organizations that that are part of this exercise it's it's a huge undertaking um to to meet the level of need that there is we we don't meet all of the needs just because of the limitations that that come with you know going across border and and what donors are able to to provide but yes care is involved um, along with many many other of big organizations that, that your listeners might be familiar with, whether that's the International Rescue Committee or World Vision. Um, you know, those are some of the the organizations that are working in collaboration with the UN to make sure that the aid gets across the border and reaches the most vulnerable people inside Syria. So we can't do it without the UN and the UN can't do it without us. So it's very much, um, you know, a codependent relationship and, and so these cross-border aid deliveries was basically how most of the aid that you said some 4 million people who are more or less completely dependent on aid you know, survived over the course of the last five or six years. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. I think the figures might have fluctuated over the years, but at the moment, the figures that, that we're seeing from the United Nations are 4 million people whose lives um, depend on, on this aid reaching them. So we're talking about... Um, access to clean water, access to, to primary health care and medicine, emergency um, services for people who are injured in the conflict, um, child protection services, education services, like you name it, it's coming across the border because it's not able to be provided inside Syria. So a lot of the groups that are really essential in this are actually Syrian national organizations. We are working as care, we are working through our partners inside Syria. So that's why when we say there's such a coordination required and that why the UN is so important in that is because you're talking about national groups, international groups, United Nations agencies, and everyone has to be joined up. Everyone has to have a clear division of labor and play to our strengths and, you know, to, to reach the people um, in the most timely way. This is what has worked over the last five years. So the Security Council resolution authorizing this cross-border aid delivery uh, was set to expire on January 10th. Can you describe sort of what happened at the Security Council on January 10th and in the weeks leading up to it uh, and why that matters today? 
Yes, I mean, what what we saw happen this year um, started off like every year. This this is a Security Council resolution that operates every year for 12 months. So every December, um, the UN and the um, international NGOs that, that work on this issue come together with Security Council members and um, have this negotiation. And for the last few years, it's just been very much a rollover of the resolution. So continuing to have the four named border crossings, um, agreeing that it will be renewed for a full 12 months so that uh, everyone has the ability to plan ahead and, you know, develop the right procurement contracts and be prepared to meet the scale of the needs that there are on the ground. But this year, uh, in well, actually last year in December, we found a, a very different dynamic at play. It's always been a difficult resolution. There's always a degree of anxiety about whether Russia in particular will renew uh, the text. But this year we found in December that, that Russia made it very clear that in their view the situation on the ground was markedly different from what it had been previously, that a lot more territory was now in the hands of the Syrian government. And as a sovereign power... Um, they believe that Syria should be um, given the authority to be the one delivering humanitarian assistance to its own population, that that's a responsibility that Syria wants to step up and take back. So we knew it was going to be difficult um, and we, you know, we had the initial round um, to try and renew the resolution happened just before Christmas, so on the 20th of December. and. In that negotiation, there were competing texts. There was one that was put forward um, by Belgium, Germany and Kuwait as the, the three um, council members who hold the pen on the humanitarian file in the council. That's their responsibility to draft the resolution and have it adopted. But when it came down to the day of the vote, Russia tabled its own text. Um, neither of the texts ended up being adopted Russia and China both vetoed the first text from the three co-pen holders because they were insistent that renewing all four border crossings was not going to happen and that really, in their view, the only population that really warranted um, humanitarian assistance because there was a humanitarian crisis was the population in Idlib. So they only wanted to renew the two crossings near Idlib that are on the Turkish border they wanted the Iraq crossing to close and the, the Jordanian crossing to close. So basically to halve the access points. Um, so the council couldn't come to agreement on either of those texts. And so we faced the real prospect of the whole cross-border mechanism being in jeopardy. Um, and that was extremely anxiety-provoking for everyone over the, the holiday season. But there were assurances, particularly from the United States, was very strong that they would work through the holiday period and ensure that there was a um, an agreed text in, in the new year and that we wouldn't allow the, the whole resolution to expire. Because so, January 10th was the date of expiry, correct? Yes. Yeah, so, so come the so 10th of January. So they needed to pass something or... The or the whole thing, whole thing would shut lapses. Down. Yeah. Exactly. So there was a real pressure of time. 
And I think when we came back in the new year, Russia was very well aware of the fact they really did hold the upper hand in these negotiations. They'd made their position very clear. They indicated to everyone at very high level, there was all sorts of demarches and um, talks going on involving the Secretary General, involving, you know, heads of state. We saw um, Putin traveling to Damascus, to um, Istanbul and, and Ankara. So we knew that it was a very, very high stakes negotiation. Um, but Russia made it clear that they weren't going to to move from their position of keeping only two crossings. And they decided when it, when it came down to it um, on the, the 10th of January that they would also insist on only a six-month renewal. So they would also halve the length of time that the, the cross-border mechanism would be able to operate before everyone has to go back into the council and try to renew it again. Well, I, I wanted to ask uh, sort of two questions uh, based on, on, on that. The first is, you know, you described what Russia said was their motive in wanting to sort of reassert uh, Syrian sovereignty over this area. Um, do you suspect there to be ulterior motives to play, though? There, I mean, there could very well be because we know that this area of the, the northeast of, of Syria is very contentious territory. Um, it, a lot of it is, is under um, Kurdish control or has been for years of the conflict. So it, it's one of those locations where um, there are many, many parties who have interests in this land and who occupies it and... Uh, so I think it is fair to say that a lot of those geopolitical dynamics were playing out behind the scenes in the council and why you saw someone like Putin, um, you know, traveling around the, the region with a lot of the key players to, you know, to reach agreement on, on how they would negotiate this in, in the Security Council. I'm sure they were talking about many other issues. It wasn't just this cross-border resolution, but we were hearing that that was one of the the key agenda items in some of these meetings. And so now that the resolution has, as you said, have the number of border crossings and reduced by six months the time in which uh, between uh, Security Council renewal of, of this mandate of those two border crossings, what impact is that having on the provision of aid uh, today, or is it too soon to tell? It is a little bit soon to tell, but I mean, we were in discussions with a lot of UN agencies um, when we we saw the the double veto happen on the twentieth of December. It was a real wake up call to everyone that we cannot presume that this is going to be renewed like other years. We really do need to face the prospect that uh, the crossing into Iraq and the crossing into Jordan will close and we need to start planning for that. And so to their credit, a lot of the UN agencies did really ramp up their pre-positioning of, of stocks to the extent that they could um, at all four crossings because there was the fear that we might lose the whole thing. So I think for the, the crossing in Iraq, which is the one that I think has been the most active of the two when you compare that to, to the crossing in Jordan, that's been closed for some months. So the focus really has been on the, the crossing into Iraq, which is called Al-Yurubia. Um, we have seen and heard that um, UN agencies have really ramped up 
what they have brought across the border. But when you talk to individual agencies and you ask them the question, what's at stake here? I mean, just one example that we have from the UN Population Fund or UNFPA, they told us that they have seven mobile clinics operating in the northeast of Syria and that those clinics are uh, providing an average of 800 uh, safe births every month to women and girls, and those mobile clinics are all about to shut down. So that's just one example of what we imagine will be fairly immediate impacts on the ground, that women will not have support to feel confident that they're able to safely deliver their babies. They won't have, you know, the maternal and neonatal support. And UNFPA is warning that this could be a contributor to a spike in neonatal and maternal deaths. So, you know, one recurring tactic of the Syrian government and their backers in Russia and Iran over the course of the conflict has been sieging or to lay siege of, of cities or areas controlled by rebels. I mean, do you see this attempt at obstructing or perhaps even cutting off um, that last lifeline of aid over the, the border of Idlib, for example, to be a part of that strategy should six months from now uh, Russia decide to veto that resolution? I mean, that that's one potential scenario. Another that we're hearing is that Russia sorry, that is that the um, Syrian government is beginning to have conversations with some of the humanitarian organizations that are registered and based in Damascus about them scaling up their ability to take humanitarian assistance up into the northeast. Hmm. But we know that there's a huge time lag there and, you know, these sorts of negotiations with this government of Syria take months because it's, you know, you're negotiating with the um, the national government, then you're negotiating at, at provincial and local level and they're literally just beginning those conversations. And, and we know from other areas where the Syrian government has, you know, taken back control and responsibility that, all of the bureaucratic hurdles and obstacles that you can imagine still face the humanitarian organizations that are trying to access vulnerable communities. So it's, it's very difficult to know exactly how this will play out, but our biggest concern is that for the four, sorry, it's 1.4 million Syrians who are in the northeast of the country and rely on cross-border assistance, particularly medical care, the failure to keep open this crossing into Iraq really could have quite devastating effects for the population. And, and that's exactly what the United Nations was warning the Security Council was the risk. This really is a lifeline for millions of Syrians. And to shut it off without putting in place an alternative process or the the access that is needed really does put a lot of people's lives and civilian lives at risk. So what does the current situation, um, having this mandate recently renewed, though cut in half, tell you about the trajectory of the conflict in Syria? I think the, the clearest signal is that uh, the government of Syria, together with Russia, really feel that they do have the upper hand and they're able to exercise their um, their will a lot more stridently and directly, even within the Security Council. Uh, 
and it really does mean that you know they're they're going to be looking at the situation on the ground in about five months' time, and the fact that that Russia was insistent that rather than renew the resolution for the normal twelve months, which helps people out on the the planning and logistics side, that it was really only um, relevant to renew for six months is an indication that they are expecting a whole different situation on the ground in Idlib in six months' time whereby they don't think there will be a humanitarian crisis anymore because the problem will have been dealt with by some other ways and means. Possibly so, by escalating militarily attacks, militarily. Yeah, and we're, we're seeing reports in, in the media today of leaflets being dropped over Idlib advising people that now is the time to leave, we'll open up additional crossings so you can get out of Idlib. And, you know, they're really putting the pressure on people to feel like this is the time they do have to flee. Um, but it's unclear to me exactly where people are meant to flee to. So it, it is shaping up like some of the um, other cities where we've seen the government of Syria move in and say, you know, the conflict is done here and people need to, to relocate. I think they're using the word that they want to cleanse the area. So those are the the messages that that people in Idlib are getting right now, um, just, you know, a matter of days after this resolution in the Security Council was passed. So it it doesn't um, give us much hope that um, Russia will be open to renewing the resolution in six months' time. But obviously we are standing by the people of Syria. The needs are not reducing. If anything, the needs are escalating. And now is the time that the Security Council, the international community writ large, needs to be standing with the people of Syria and making sure that their basic right to to live in safety and have access to food and shelter and education for their children, that's what we need to strive for and regardless of how difficult the political terrain becomes in the Security Council, that's definitely what organisations like CARE are striving to do, to to stand with the people of Syria and as best we can to try to continue to meet their humanitarian needs. Uh, well, Vanessa, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. No, thank you very much for shining a light on the situation. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Vanessa Jackson. That was a helpful, useful conversation. Again, I'm glad to be able to shine a spotlight on this issue. As always, please feel free to reach out to me. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or just hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I always love hearing from you. I will see you next time. Bye.